should you care about CDN 77 to retain those 17 out of 20 people who click away due to buffering? CDN 77 is a global content delivery network optimized for video and backed by skilled 24-7 support. Visit cdn77.com slash packet pushers to get your free unlimited trial. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, and today's topic is uh, WASM, that is WebAssembly. It's a topic that Ned and I have hit on before in Day 2 Cloud, and we're going we're gonna to go deep uh, today. Well, we're going to talk for a long time, and it's going to seem deep, and, and at the same time, Ned, it feels like we barely scratched the surface. It really does feel that way. I think we, we almost hit an hour with this one, and I, I, we could have gone for another two hours because the topic is just broad-ranging, and, and Matt Butcher, who's our guest, is just a very engaging speaker to begin with. So I, what, I got of it, what I got out of it was WebAssembly is an up-and-coming technology. It's probably going to fall into your lap as an operational person at some point, so you should definitely bone up on it now so you're ready for when it happens. As Ned said, our guest is Matt Butcher. Matt is the CEO of Fermion Technologies. That's a startup there, uh, just getting ready with products. It's not a sponsor show today. It's just Matt. We're leaning hard into his expertise in this area. And man, he does know a lot. You will enjoy this conversation very much with Matt Butcher. Hello, Matt. In a sentence or two, would you tell the nice folks listening who you are and what you do? Censor two. That's short. Oh man, I just wasted both of them. No, uh, <laughs> I'm 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 Matt Butcher. I'm the CEO of Fermion. I might be the world's biggest WebAssembly fanatic at this point. Uh, you know, Fermion is working on technologies based around WebAssembly, and we've been doing a lot of fun stuff for the last couple of years. WebAssembly fanatic. I, I, apparently, we have the right person on the show then, because we're talking <laughs> all about WebAssembly today. So, um, so for people that are listening here, you're talking to infrastructure engineers, people that are hands-on with uh, with technology. Mm-hmm. For those folks who maybe aren't familiar with WebAssembly, can you define it for them in in a nutshell? Let's try to keep it concise. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are a lot of very complex definitions of WebAssembly kind of floating around, but at the end of the day, really, it's just two things. It's a specification for how to compile things to a bytecode-like format and a specification for how to execute that bytecode format. So probably the easiest comparison is like, it's it's sort of like the new generation of, you know, the Java virtual machine or the .NET CLR, uh, but with a bunch of new interesting uh, kinds of features, particularly on the security side that, that make it different enough to warrant having another one of these things. We're not just reinventing the same technology again. Uh, This one is different in kind. Uh, And in particular there, it's security, right? Um, JVM, CLR, the default kind of uh, disposition of the virtual machine toward the user, uh, toward the software developer, right? Is, well, we trust that the code you're writing is, is good code. And consequently, we give you access to the system resources like the file system and the network and things like that. And yes, you can shut them off, but the default disposition is trust the code. Uh, WebAssembly, really, it's a default disposition is don't trust the code, right? <laughs> By uh, you, you don't want untrusted code running in your browser. And that was what WebAssembly was originally built for. Uh, or rather, I should say it this way. When you run untrusted code in your browser because it's floating around there somewhere, you don't want it to be able to do anything nefarious on your on your system. And so really the VM was built sort of the language VM was built with that kind of default security model. And that turns out to be a good fit for a number of other cases besides just the web browser. 
Yeah. So is it fair to compare Wasm WebAssembly to a compiler or an interpreter? Uh, yeah, actually, I think you could you can talk about it in that family, right? Uh, it probably, again, like the JVM is probably the best thing to compare it to, which is a bytecode level interpreter. It, it, it interprets a binary and it might JIT compile or ahead of time compile both features that WebAssembly does as well. But that's what it is at the core, right? Right. And if I was making the distinction here, if I think of a JVM, I'm assuming that my base language here is Java. So I'm using Java, I'm writing it, and then I'm using it to yeah. translate things to bytecode. Is there a similar language distinction with Wasm, or do you have more options when it comes to the base language you're using before you convert it? That I think the two biggest bytecode runtimes that we've seen have evolved in such a way that they that the, the uh, language co-evolves with them, right? So there's C-sharp and the entire .NET language of families that all sort of co-evolved with the CLR. And there's Java, of course, that evolved with the JVM. And then all the languages that also run on the JVM, within reason, but uh, all of them are re really sort of specially built to run on that, uh, on that runtime. WebAssembly's early promise that has continued to play out is that any, it should be possible to take any language, whether compiled or scripting, and eventually get it running on the WebAssembly um, virtual machine, right? The WebAssembly execution context. And so the early one, the earliest target language was C, because I guess, uh, you know, if you look at the, the history of security, C is top of the problem child list. But also, if you look at the history of like, old libraries that you might want to be able to support, C is pretty much the top of that one too. So C was a very early target. Now it's, now you got most of the top 20 languages in there, including, uh, you know, Python and Ruby both recently added support. VMware has been working on PHP support. Mm -hmm. uh, so you got a, a bundle of scripting languages. And then on systems languages, you've got Go and Rust support, C++ support. And then, you know, the coolest part is in that, in that intermediate language stage, right? The executed binary languages, uh, .NET support is actually really good for WebAssembly and Java's kind of coming along too. So uh, we're really seeing a big, big chunk of languages come along. It's funny that you mentioned C up front because I know uh, C's been getting beat up lately by the Rust aficionados. It's, <laughs> you know, memory unsafe and Rust can solve that for them. But here's another context by which you can solve that memory safety issue by putting it in a little box and you can't get out yeah. of the box. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there, there's a funny there's a funny rumor circulating and Ooh. I have not verified this, but <laughs> but it makes sense. And that is that when the uh, the 0365 team was porting um, some of Excel over to run in browser, they ran across a couple of really gnarly C libraries that have been around since you know dinosaurs still walked the earth and and Excel ran on a 386, and uh, and they rather than attempt to sort of rewrite that logic in JavaScript, they took that C library, compiled it to WebAssembly, and then hooked it up sort of in browser. <laughs> and I mean, the, whether it's whether it's apocryphal or not, uh, the the idea behind that story is sort of expresses some of that core value proposition of WebAssembly. You know, we can take some code that has been written a long time ago and and you know be ha, be able to give it life in new and interesting context without necessarily having to do massive rewrites of it gotcha now that that code like the excel code for instance is that something that's running server side on the office 365 servers or is that something that's running client side within the context of my browser 
again, assuming the story is not apocryphal, it is run. That's to run in the browser for their for their side of things. You know, and, and I mean, this is the interesting thing about WebAssembly. You know, it was designed to run in a web browser. That was its initial use case. And it definitely found purchase there, right? In in Office, in Figma, in, you know, the Adobe suite. But, you know, again, those characteristics of it, you know, the kind of secure runtime and the ability to connect it with the outside environment, the ability to compile lots of different languages to it, uh, those lend to a, a lot of cases that aren't browser-oriented. And, and I like to think of, for me, there are kind of four big areas where uh, WebAssembly looks promising. So the browser is obviously the first one, right? Uh, but, you know, sort of adjacent to that, you could say, all right, well, another interesting feature of WebAssembly is the fact that the binary type is fairly compact and you can run it in a fairly small runtime and you can run it in an interpreted mode and you can deliver them fairly, deliver the binaries fairly quickly over the network. These were all virtues for the browser, but they line up pretty well with what you need for an IoT story as well, right? Where you might be dealing with constrained devices that also need, you know, again, I, I'm not going to pick on IoT as historically insecure, but IoT has been historically insecure. Uh, and here's a here's an interesting way to add to layer in some security. Yeah, Matt, you can call IoT currently insecure. You don't have to even mention historically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as we all know, um, the, the the S in IoT is for security. That's right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I, I worked at I worked at an IoT startup years ago called Revolve, and uh, and we were working hard on the security model, but we would stumble across devices and go. No, 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 no. This clearly couldn't be. You can write directly to the memory register of the device over the net. No, this can't be the way. Oh, crap. <laughs> you know, oh, um, you know, so uh, we'll go with historically because it sounds kinder, even though really, really I think uh, probably a good swath of that industry is learning about security later than, than they should. And WebAssembly is a good way to sort of introduce a new layer of security in there where you can talk about running the code inside of a sandboxed environment. Um, so another another good application of WebAssembly that has been kind of exciting is, uh, you know, for for years we have built years, decades, uh, we have we have built applications, gotten to that point where we said, all right, well, now I want the user or I want third party engineers or something to be able to make slight modifications to the way something runs. So I'm going to build a plugin architecture for that. And in the, you know, typically our plugin architectures kind of look like, well, I'm going to pick a programming language that I happen to like. And I'm going to, you know, embed that in the system and you're going to write your plugins in, you know, JavaScript or Lua or whatever the language was that I picked. Uh, WebAssembly has some interesting potential there for being able to embed a runtime that many languages can compile to. And then consequently, you know, developers and individuals who want to extend an application can do it in their language of choice. Uh, most interesting application of this has been, uh, I think, Single Store, which is a database company that went oh, well, we could embed a WebAssembly runtime inside of the database, and then you could write stored procedure, well, a, an alternative to stored procedures in, say, Python or Ruby or Rust and have those run and execute inside the database. So you don't even have to move the data out of the database to operate on it. You can do it inside the database. And I think that's kind of an extension of that kind of plugin model. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the fourth model is the one I'm most excited about because as a longtime cloud engineer, right, to me, it's like, what is cloud? Uh, well, it's when one person supplies hardware and another person runs their stuff on it, right? Uh, and and I don't have to manage, you know, I as an application developer don't have to manage that infrastructure that's running my code. And uh, you as the operations team, 
uh, provide a generic service, but you want to protect all the different users from each other and all the different applications from each other. And of course, all of the, your own, your own infrastructure from bad acting people. So that kind of sandboxy layer that virtual machines offered first, and then containers came along and offered really second, you know, we're seeing that same kind of sandboxy model for WebAssembly, but for a different kind of workload. So that's, you know, kind of fourth big area of interest to me. Well, the big area of interest to me, but a fourth big area of application for WebAssembly is that kind of cloud world. So Matt, listening to you describe some of what happens on the server side, I'm reminded of uh, way back in the day, you know, CGI, that was a thing. Uh, we'd run <laughs> on some of our web servers and then uh, then Java with Tomcat servers. Are there any parallels we can draw from what those were or are to uh, to what WASM is? <laughs> all, all things come back or come back into fashion, right? Uh, so grab your bell bottoms and let's talk about CGI. I guess those were really like two decades apart, but you know, um, <laughs> Yeah, I think the WebAssembly ecosystem in some ways has some very early parallels with the early, has some very clear parallels with the early web ecosystem. Uh, for us, it certainly did. You know, you start a technology like WebAssembly or, you know, like Java or even early containers. And uh, there's a sense in which you can tell the core of the story very quickly. And, and you know, WebAssembly is, as a technology has been around for, I think, about seven years now since it was started and about five years since it hit 1.0. Core, core story was told very quickly. But then when you start to connect it with various ecosystems around it, uh, in all cases, that story gets kind of tricky. You know, containers needed a Kubernetes and needed, you know, an etcd and needed all kinds of things before we could build the kind of systems we build now. Uh, similarly, WebAssembly needs, uh, you know, uh, application platform support for the cloud needs, you know, if you're going to embed it in IoT needs, needs uh, an ability to connect to exotic devices or run on exotic devices and connect to exotic peripherals like sensors and things like that. And a lot of work has been going on doing that kind of connection work. The brunt of it has been in a group called, or in a specification called WASI, which stands for the WebAssembly System Interface. Um, basically a, a an uber project defining how a WebAssembly runtime should be connected to uh, things like a file system or things like networking in a way that retains the sandbox security model. And ideally now with a component model, which is a new part of the WASI specification, uh, in a way that allows us to extend what we can do. We as say platform engineers exposing to our user base new features that they will be able to take advantage of like a database connection or an HTTP outbound uh, library or something like that. In between, <laughs> we have to figure out how to make things work. Uh, we have to figure out how to make do, right? So um, early on, we realized that uh, while WebAssembly didn't have all the networking libraries set up so that we could build something, you know, that functions closer to say a servlet, uh, where where you just pass the network connection into the into the user code. We did actually build a CGI-like system that we called Waggy WebAssembly Gateway Interface. It was CGI 1.1 compliant. I mean, so <laughs> you were not far off the mark when you say it was what, what can we learn from CGI? And it was because we knew. The WASI support for file system and for environment variables and for clock and for random were all really well done and stable already, while the ones for the networking features and database features and things like that were still in flight. And we said, hey, we can figure out how to make this work now. It's we just need to rewind to 1996. Uh, thankfully, you know, those days are sort of passing by and we're moving on into the next uh 
the next big growth area for WebAssembly. But it was a fun time, kind of dusting off the old uh, 1996 programming books that are still somewhere over on the bookshelf <laughs> behind me. And going, what what can I still learn from these books? And 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 what can I, what problems can I solve today based on how we were trying to solve problems back then? How long has Wasm been around exactly? You said five to seven years, somewhere in there, different revs were released and such. So numbers are flighty objects in my world, but I believe that it was 2015 when Luke Wagner announced on the Mozilla blog that they were starting the WebAssembly initiative. And it came out of uh, ASMJS.js, which is a library he and others had worked on before. Uh, And then they wanted to push it right away into W3 and just say, and, and they wanted to get so this is this they in this case, right? Is is uh, Mozilla at that time, right? Mozilla wanted to get Google and Microsoft and any other major browser vendors all in a room and all collaborating on this because if you're going to do something in the browser and you want to make it work well for everybody, you've got to have pretty quick alignment on all of those. The days of fe- feature races are hopefully gone from the browser world. Um, and Luke and and the early WebAssembly developers were really successful in doing so. And so the WebAssembly spec uh, sort of evolved out of cooperative, uh, out of a cooperative environment between those, at least those three companies. I think it ends up being something like the entire W3 working group for it is probably 14 plus companies. Um, and I think that's kind of remarkable. Uh, so Brendan Eich and uh, Alan Wurstbrock wrote a paper, maybe I read it during the pandemic sitting on my back porch. Uh, so it must have been around 2020 um, called JavaScript, the first 20 years. And, uh, you know, if if you're if you're in for tech drama, really nerdy tech drama, this is probably the best paper you can read. It's basically like every single thing that went wrong in the attempt to standardize JavaScript during its first 20 years of life, you know, from, you know, the early Netscape years to people throwing things at ECMA's meetings and stuff like that. And I like to think that maybe since that's that same audience, you know, the same crowd that learned there and, and then started working on WebAssembly, that maybe uh, the part of the success story of WebAssembly was really learning from JavaScript how how not to do things and also how to do things, right? And how to get it in a standards body and how to get a process to control how you're going to move a spec forward. So WebAssembly has comparatively been just about drama free. No, nothing, no human endeavor is ever drama free, but just about drama free. Now, if we look at the timing of all of this with Wasm and about when it came to to life, we have these other execution environments, containers, serverless, and so mm-hmm. on that are coming on the scene at a similar time. It feels like WebAssembly could have solved some of the problems that we solve with containers and or serverless. But those didn't get a lot of momentum, uh, or Wasm didn't get a lot of momentum compared to those other ones. So what's why didn't we start with WebAssembly? Why is it catching on now, yeah. years later? Well, uh, yeah, and there are a couple directions you could go there, because I, I don't think that if WebAssembly had caught on earlier, we wouldn't have containers. I, I think we've got some, I think each of them solves a unique set of problems, but it does speak to the way that our ecosystems work. You know, as not long ago, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is not a software engineer. And at one point in the conversation, he's like, what do you do? Well, you know, I do cloud and I'm, I'm working on this WebAssembly stuff. And, and and you know, had that moment where they're like, oh, uh, so can you take a look at my Quick, QuickBooks local setup? Because <laughs> something's not right. 
and realized, you know, from an from an outsider looking in, right, there's no difference between, you know, an embedded software engineer writing C and a platform engineer running a million node cluster. They just, there's no difference in their mind. And, and then, you know, us as insiders know, well, there's a huge difference, right? We make careers in niches within this big ecosystem. And we, I think, a lot of times we accidentally build walls, right? Uh, you know, I'm not a full stack developer. I'm a I'm a backend server engineer. You know, I'm a systems programmer. I don't know what the latest JavaScript, you know, framework or whatever they're called <laughs> is. That's not that's not where I am. And I think WebAssembly sort of grew up in a world adjacent to cloud native, and we didn't really early on see much cross pollination. And you know, this is just one of those things where. By happenstance, there were no connections. And then one day, by happenstance, there were three connections. And the next thing you know, the two, the cross-pollination really starts and you start to see momentum build. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, the two kind of grew up in relative containers and 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 WebAssembly sort of grew up in isolation from each other. And we didn't see a lot of early interactivity, at least if there was any, I don't know about it. Right. And then at some point, Solomon Hikes sort of discovered it and tweeted about. If this had, if WebAssembly had been around in 2008, then we wouldn't have built containers. And then, you know, the next tweet after that is saying, "Well, that's not exactly what I meant. I might have, you know, sort of been a little over enthusiastic, but, but they're really cool. It's a really cool technology." Um, and uh, uh, I, I, I think that's just the way tech works sometimes. And also, I think there's a sense in which once WebAssembly hit maturity, I think the oh, okay. So this is another thing, right? I think we tend to like kind of we want to write scope any of our projects and say, okay, I'm building a thing that does X. And that's a really good idea. And if you don't identify what the problem is you're solving, then uh, you, you know you get sprawly code bases that don't really do any one job great and do a lot of jobs. Eh. Um, but if you can really kind of focus in and, and solve a problem, then you have a, a, a good chance of making some progress. And I think WebAssembly was originally intended to solve a very specific problem. How do I run C code. How do I run, you know, uh, Python code in my web browser side by side with my JavaScript engine and make it possible to pass data back and forth? And the spec is kind of laser focused on building the kind of virtual machine you need to do that. And it really only comes out a little bit later once that's done and once people understand what the characteristics of it are that you say, oh, well, actually, it's too bad I didn't know about this two years ago because this would have been a great serverless runtime, which is, you know, the, <laughs> essentially the way we approached it and said, you know, serverless, the, the kind of first version of serverless was this promise that we were going to build, you know, low management, ultra fast execution environments for code, right? Uh, Lambda being an excellent example of this. Uh, but as we got building, we went, oh, well, you know, the way these things execute on my local machine and the way they execute in the cloud is going to be very different. And the sandboxing model in the cloud keeps introducing more overhead. We need to make sure that, you know, this piece of untrusted code running somewhere on my server can't root its sandbox environment and then make its way in and infect the host environment or other customer environments. And so we have to start building uh, security measures and the virtual machine and container layers were not fast enough for, for this kind of early promise of serverless. So for us, when we looked at WebAssembly and it's like great performance profile where it can start up in, you know, a couple of milliseconds or under a millisecond as we've gotten in now, um, we're going, that's the kind of engine that that we needed two or three years ago to power serverless. So let's take a chance and say, all right, 
can we build sort of a, excuse me for using that kind of phrasing that we all hate in our industry, a serverless V2, right? Can we build a serverless that's, <laughs> uh, I didn't say V next, which is, uh, but a serverless V2 where we can say, okay, we'll take the ideas that were successful, this idea that uh, that you can run an, a, an isolated function, have it start up and shut down in, in seconds and do something really useful. And can we replatform that on an environment that'll cut it from start up and shut down in seconds to start up and shut down in milliseconds and still accomplish that same amount of utility? So, uh, you know, you know, I think we were, as, as should be expected, right? We started projects in silos. We didn't talk to each other. Full stack mm-hmm. developers and web developers did not sit down with cloud native developers and say, let me tell you about this technology that you might be able to borrow until we were a good four or five years into the ecosystem. And then when it happened, it happened, right? It, it, it has caught on in a, in, a, in a bigger way than I think even I, you know, self-proclaimed super WebAssembly optimist person, am sort of surprised about how quickly it's caught on and, and how, um, how positively WebAssembly has been received, right? We don't view it as the big threat that has to be defeated by the incumbent container world, right? Docker looks at it and says, hey, this is great. Let's drop it right into Docker desktop alongside of containers because we can do interesting things this way. And I think that's been a really cool thing. And I don't know, maybe I'm optimistic, but I hope that it's a reflection of the fact that we as an industry are learning lessons about uh, causing drama or, you know, a perspective that causes drama versus a perspective that says, okay, this promising technology, what can we do with it? Uh, and and maybe we're starting to learn to opt toward the latter. Let's pause the po- po- podcast for a bit. Research suggests that 17 out of 20 people will click away due to buffering or stalling, and I am definitely one of those 17. There's lots of stuff to watch out there, and there's no reason to wait around. If your company delivers online media, Consider CDN 77. They are a globally distributed content delivery network and they're optimized for video on demand as well as live video. CDN 77 is not some newcomer to the scene. They are used today by many popular sites and apps, including Udemy, ESL Gaming, Live Sports, and various social media platforms. And that makes sense to me. CDN 77 has scale. They have a massive network with distribution points all over the globe and plenty of redundancy. Well, that means you shouldn't have problems. What happens when you do need tech support? CDN 77 offers 24-7 support staffed by a team of engineers. No chatbots, no tickets getting routed around queues while no one actually does anything. Just no-nonsense dedication to your issue to get your online media back to 100%. To prove that CDN 77 will work for your content delivery, visit cdn77.com slash packetpushers to get a free trial with no duration or traffic limits. That's cdn77.com slash packet pushers for a free trial you can push hard for serious proof of concept testing. cdn77.com slash packet pushers. And now back to this week's episode. The serverless idea using WebAssembly for the serverless context changes the way that we've talked about it so far, because before we were talking about it, in the context of running inside a browser. Everybody has a browser, it's kind of client side. Mm-hmm. But now you're talking about running a workload that's server side or serverless side, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so from, from like an operational standpoint, uh, do you just have uh, like a Linux virtual machine that's running a whole bunch of these WebAssembly uh, virtual machines on top of it? Is that sort of the operational model that we're looking at here? Uh, so that was where we started. 
Uh, and and it has gotten very interesting as we've learned more about WebAssembly because it turns out uh, that we can get better than that, right? So so the original way we built this was, and this a little bit of this is Fermion specific, right? And and you can build your own system to do various uh, permutations of a pattern like this. But what we're discovering is we started out going, okay, we can we can start one VM, uh, and then we can. Uh, you know, essentially execute n different WebAssembly runtimes on top of this VM, uh, and it works well. Actually, it worked fairly well um, to just say, you know, per customer, each one gets their VM, and they upload their application to that VM, or per application, each one gets this. And VM here, sorry, I should be very clear in my terminology. <laughs> you get one big VM, uh, you know, virtual machine. Uh, we'll call it like an AWS extra large for for just to kind of say, okay, so virtual machine, that's the size we're talking about, right? Um, then we have, and we'll just call them run, WebAssembly runtimes, right? So how many WebAssembly runtimes can you run on one virtual machine? Uh, well, the first pattern is, well, we'll run one virtual, one standalone process that's got its WebAssembly virtual machine per application. That was how we started. Uh, but as we learn more about the WebAssembly security model and the dials and knobs that we could turn on an on a WebAssembly execution context, right? The thing that's actually running the the, the bytecodes, we went, oh well, you know, we can limit everything. We can limit CPU, we can limit number of instructions, we can limit the amount of memory, we can, you know, uh present it with a virtualized file system that doesn't actually correspond to a real file system anymore. And the more we got talking about this, the more we went. Well, there's no reason we'd have to run one process per application. And this is where we've really got interested in the potential of WebAssembly, where we said, OK, we can actually run n applications inside of a single process. And then from there, we started saying, OK, well, you know, we can take something like a scheduling, an orchestration system, orchestrate out several different uh, virtual machines, each of which running one of these kind of WebAssembly runtimes on it. And then we can start scheduling out workloads that way and, and run hundreds and hundreds of WebAssembly applications per virtual machine instance. And that's kind of where we've been going. And because of the WebAssembly security model, that route looks very, very promising to us. Okay. So you've got the virtual machine that would be running your Linux operating system. I'm, I'm guessing it's probably. Yeah. Yeah, system. I mean, then, it doesn't doesn't matter too much, but we run Linux, yeah. Right, and then you have your uh, WebAssembly uh, runtime that's uh, a process running on that virtual machine. And inside that process, yeah. you've got a whole bunch of instances, maybe like threads running inside that process. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And you need something to schedule all that and, and manage yep. it and maintain it. And I'm assuming that's not built into WebAssembly. So you're going to need no, no. something else in for that. Uh, the the orchestrator and scheduler everybody likes to talk about is Kubernetes. So is the solution Kubernetes? <laughs> so we started with Kubernetes uh, and we are currently on Nomad, uh, which is HashiCorp scheduler. And, and part of the reason we drifted from one to the other is that you know, and we built a project, it's in CNCF, it's called Crustlet. So you can go take a look at how we did all of this and uh, and even run it inside of Kubernetes. And you'll see that it ends up being more like that application per process model because the uh, Kubernetes is just a little too opinionated about what the artifact running has to look like, right? What the shape of the workload has to be, really to the point where it assumes a container. And, and so we were writing a lot of shimmy kind of code, shimmy. Uh, we were writing a lot of shim code. Uh, now I like shimmy. Uh, I like shimmy that, too. <laughs> that we wrote some shimmy code that um, that uh, scheduled WebAssembly workloads, but tried to make them look like containers. 
Uh, and and it, it worked, but it wasn't really kind of, we felt like we weren't getting as much out of it as we could. So we switched over to Nomad, uh, which is a little more generic in the way Nomad views the workload. Uh, and it provides all the scheduling primitives. And, uh, you know, I think at core, you would call it maybe a process scheduler instead of a container scheduler. But even so, you know, we wrote a custom task driver, which is a couple hundred lines of code uh, that basically receives a WebAssembly workload and schedules it onto the WebAssembly executor instead of scheduling it as a container and letting it start up its container runtime or scheduling it as a process and having it start up a process environment. That for us has worked really well. So at Fermion, you know, we we will probably stay stay the course there. We are not the only ones in the ecosystem, though. And, uh, you know, Microsoft uh, has continued working on the WebAssembly and Kubernetes story. Um, recently donated RunWASI, which is uh, the name of the R-U-N-W-A-S-I is the name of the project, to the Containerd project, and basically has worked on a Containerd shim where you can execute, again, a WebAssembly workload that sort of looks sort of shaped to look like a container workload for kubernetes but they i i mean hurts me a little because because the ego thing right but they've done a really good job and they've done much better than we were doing when we tried to build crustlet they just figured out a better way of doing it and i think that project is showing a lot of promise as far as a way of running WebAssembly inside of kubernetes hmm. so you know in the future we, i i don't know which one will win i i you know i placed my bet they placed their bet and maybe there's room enough for there probably is room enough for both in this ecosystem but uh that's kind of the way the orchestration stuff is played out uh, matt you're describing a process to get a to get a, a wasm process running that sounds like it takes a, a long time at least in in computer speak you know, many uh, milliseconds seconds potentially to get something scheduled uh moved queued up running doing something and then you know shutting down are there performance challenges here do i have to consider what sort of workloads are appropriate because of this architecture so um, there, yes, yes, and in surprising ways, honestly. Uh, so let's walk through just the process of deploying and then scheduling and then executing an application. And we can kind of in parallel talk about containers versus versus WebAssembly, and we'll start to see how this goes, right? So developer, you know, developer A uh, is building a container thing. Developer B is building a WebAssembly thing. Both of them are starting by building something local, writing some code, and then you know, running commands that essentially package these up and, and prepare them for orchestration. In the Kubernetes case, somewhere along the line, uh, they're writing a Helm, Helm chart uh, or something equivalent. Uh, in the WebAssembly space currently, you're really just deploying the raw application and letting the scheduler do the rest. So it's the application plus, plus you know, it's supporting files. Um, so at some point, I, developer A pushes it to Kubernetes you know, the resources get allocated and, and things get scheduled. Right now, we look at, you know, a few dozen seconds to maybe six seconds in the on the lower end to get everything deployed out there. And then once it's deployed, the container starts up and depending on its replica count is always running at whatever that replica count is. So if I set my replica count to three, I got three containers ideally distributed across three different worker nodes on my Kubernetes cluster. So if we pivot over to the WebAssembly story, it's it's a little different in shape once we get to this deployment side. So Nomad, and, I, and I'm going to use the Fermion case, but you can substitute in. If I knew more about RunWASI, I could substitute in the same kind of workflow there too. And Nomad deploys out the, the, uh, the WebAssembly binary and, and files to the workers, right? Um, and 
the workers then have it distributed. And, and we, we could say, again, you know, I want I want it to be deployed on three different replicas. Um, but WebAssembly doesn't then start things up right away, right? They just, the binary gets loaded on there and nothing is started at all. Uh, because frankly, the way we built things, if it's a stateless microservice, you don't, and you and the startup time is sub one millisecond, there's no point in starting it up. It's it's more like a function you can, you, you'll, you'll, uh, yeah. you'll call upon it when it needs to be executed. It doesn't need to be sit, sit there and be listening. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is why I call it kind of a serverless v2 model, right? The way that functions of service typically work is you actually have a bunch of pre-warmed infrastructure sitting around waiting till the last second or last 200 milliseconds and then literally drops the workload on, executes it and then in many cases just tears down the infra and you get this whole queue of infra where it's standing up a a, a war, warming up instances and then, you know, shunting them off to to execute a function and then tear them down and start up a new one and pop it on the end of the queue. Um, and that's probably a better model to compare this to as well, or a good model to compare this to as well. So WebAssembly deploys these binary files that just go out and live on execution context somewhere on runtimes. And then every time a request comes in, the WebAssembly application is started up, executed to completion and shut down. But because you're really the only bit of in, of infrastructure you need is the memory and, and CPU power to execute that function in that very moment we don't have to have a bunch of pre-warmed resources up there and we can hit very, very high densities because we're running all of these WebAssembly things. And again, these sort of big macro WebAssembly execution environments that can run, you know, hundreds of applications worth in a single uh, AWS virtual machine. So what is it, you know, we're going, okay, so yes, we're starting to outperform the kind of typical serverless workload, which is where WebAssembly's strong point is. It's not going to, replace any of the container workloads because these are short executed things that start up, execute, shut down. Containers are really about things that start up, run for a long period of time. And yeah, yeah, they get torn down and stood up again periodically, but periodically is really days, months, or or, or quarters rather than seconds or milliseconds. So server side, at least, there is no idea of a longstanding stateful workload that would be assigned to, uh, to Wasm. We currently do not even attempt it. Yeah. yeah. And and part of the reason why is because the problem space we were after to solve is the serverless one, right? And we have never had a good reason to try and build a technology that competed with containers, uh, particularly mm -hmm. when WebAssembly is still maturing, right? The, the threading specification is not done for WebAssembly. And without threading, it makes it awfully difficult to build something like, say, a database or a message queue. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, if the technology is not ready for the market and there's really no reason to try and, you know, take on the incumbent Docker technology, then why waste effort there? Mm. On the serverless side, on the other hand, you know, we saw a big two years of massive growth, everybody getting interested. And then then the developers kept telling us, like when I was at Microsoft, we heard this all the time. This model is great. I love it. I mean, it just dived right into the business logic, right? I got a function and I just fill out the function. I don't have to stand up an HTTP server, manage the processes, handle kill signals, anything like that. I just write an HTTP handler. And they really like that. But the technology just wasn't quite fast enough to do a lot of the things that people want to do to run, say, really, really high performance, high volume website. Uh, you, know, you can't score a 99 to 100 on a Google PageSpeed rank if you have 200 milliseconds of startup time for your function on the server. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going, OK, well, here's a big opportunity. And that, that and the fact that 
I, I guess I would want to call a lot of the serverless ones sort of Frankenstein-y in nature in that they didn't really quite mesh with the way anybody wanted to work. They were kind of like glommed onto the side and, you know, platform engineers are like, great, now I got something over here that I have to take care of and I don't know what it does and why and it's opaque. And developers are going, great, I'm back to the days where I have to ship a tarball with my code up to a server, cross my fingers and hopes it work, hope it works. And we went, okay, so there's a lot of room where the developer story of WebAssembly, you know, as, as being sort of built right into your programming language, your compiler just compiles out a WebAssembly binary. There's a sense in which that's going to appeal to the developer a lot more than than yield tarball ship yield ssh scp tarball kind of thing mm -hmm. uh and then i think we can work back to a better infra story too where we can say you know we'll do a better job of observability and traceability and uh, um gathering metrics and things like that and make it less of a thing glommed onto the side and more of a piece that feels like a manageable segment of a bigger picture that includes not just WebAssembly, but also containers and virtual machines and the litany of other cloud services that we have out there. Yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, think PC kind of things around is serverless dead? And, and to a certain degree, have we overcorrected on this microservices architecture? And should we all just go back to monoliths? And that's that's probably a conversation for a whole other, <laughs> whole other episode. Um, I'd like to focus on some of the security aspects mm -hmm. of Wasm and where it might shine from a security perspective and what are some challenges around implementing wasm properly and securing especially like a multi-tenant environment where you might have more than one customer wanting to run a, a wasm process yeah uh, so the security model for WebAssembly is basically built on this idea that you have a, an isolated sandbox that executes the bytecode and that that isolated sandbox is limiting consumption of well, it, it limits effectively any consumption of an external resource. So that includes CPU cycles and, and memory. But say you grant your WebAssembly module access to the file system, access to a quote unquote file system in this case, right? And, and really what you want to do there, and we know this Kubernetes actually, I think, nailed this story. And WebAssembly, I think, is is playing, uh, is replaying a similar story. You don't all, when you, when a developer says, I want a file system, uh, as an operations team, we don't just give them access to the file system, right? We give them <laughs> access to a nice siloed off piece of data that looks and feels to the code like a file system. And what's behind it? Who knows, right? And this is what I loved about the way Kubernetes storage works is that the developer has no idea whether they're getting a piece of a local file system or whether they're getting some piece of network attached storage or whether they're getting a simulated file system. As long as the you know code level part of it works, the implementation is beyond what they need to know. And WebAssembly really does the same thing. It says, okay, so we're, but WebAssembly's default is, well, you know, uh, the host runtime will determine what the what the implementation of the file system is, the WebAssembly uh, host runtime will just make it look like a file system to the piece of code that's running. Uh, so again, yeah, straight out of the Kubernetes playbook, and I love the fact that, it, that they did it this way because then you get that same security layer and you get the same thing with environment variables. And now as, as networking is starting to pick up, you know, our HTTP implementation says, you know, uh, we'll proxy everywhere, the, the host will control the socket layer and then pass on the payload layer to the to the uh, to the WebAssembly module, so it can construct an HTTP response 
And the host runtime will turn that response object into an actual HTTP on the wire response. And that way you have this security layer where you can say, is this doing anything dastardly? Yes, it is. We're not going to let it do that. Or no, it's not. All right, let it through. And I think that's the way the WebAssembly security model has really started. It's kind of a combination of uh, you know, what in academic computing is usually called a capabilities model, plus really kind of the key learnings of how to do security in a distributed world that you see having really picked up you know, from from early like Mesos and really, really gained traction with Kubernetes as Kubernetes has matured. So the runtime story is fairly nice and 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 cozy, we think. So far, we all feel like it's fairly cozy. Uh, then there's the old software supply chain problem. <laughs> and that really has to do with, well, how do I make sure that the WebAssembly module that that made its way to the runtime is in fact the one that should be there, right? That it's the developer who wrote it is trusted and that the binary at each point along the way managed to make its way through. Right. And we, we got off to what I, in hindsight, think was a false start on this one. Uh, you know, and, and in part because we were we were building this in parallel with uh, SigStore and some of the other things in the Kubernetes world, and they weren't done yet, so we couldn't necessarily just draw on them. But we built a, a uh, we built a, a service called Bindle that was designed to be sort of end to end secure, required a lot of signing. Every everything was encrypted. Uh, every object had its hash code. We built up Merkle trees. You know, all these words that I say out loud should be like, yeah, I think I've heard all those words before, but in a different <laughs> context. Because while we're doing this, you know, the Docker container ecosystem, the OCI ecosystem, and the and the the uh, software supply chain uh, system were sort of co evolving. And for whatever reason, and again, this is probably that same silo thing we talked about before. Initially, we sort of resisted getting involved in that community. And in hindsight, I think that was a mistake. So recently, Fermion, Microsoft, Docker, uh, you know, most of the large organizations who are working on WebAssembly, we have all said, okay, enough of that experimenting with that stuff. Software supply chain is is coming along very well in the container ecosystem. Once OCI pushed through the artifact spec, there's no reason we couldn't support storing WebAssembly applications inside of OCI images. And then suddenly we get an end-to-end -end software supply chain story. And so really over the last four months, uh, we've kind of pivoted uh, from trying to build a WebAssembly unique software supply chain story to just saying, man, we're going to go with the OCI on this one. And uh you know, uh, you have those sleepless nights where you're like, what if this happened? What if that happened? And uh, and then a change happens and you go, oh, I can sleep better at night. That was what happened for us with the OCI story. Once we realized we were really uh, swapping out anxiety about an untrusted system that we had, or an, an untested system that we thought had the right trust model, uh, we suddenly found that we could pivot to an almost identical trust model based on a system that now had huge industry momentum behind it. And in record time, right, we started Bindle two years ago and SigStore was just kind of starting to get its feet. And now here, only two years later, we are starting to see all of these technologies be treated as sort of like the de facto or the default. And we don't have to do anything, right? Other people who are smarter and better at security than I am can do all of the work and I can just kind of reap the rewards. So that's the way I think WebAssembly is going to go. Matt, as you've described uh, WebAssembly and how the processes run, it feels like it sits on top of and is sort of somewhat abstracted away from the infrastructure underneath. 
Um, so, I, so maybe this is a dumb question, but the question is observability. Is there anything unusual with observability that I need to care about regarding WASM? Uh, in fact, not a dumb question. It is one of my favorite questions because I think this is where WebAssembly actually over the long term will be something of a game changer. Uh, you know, one of the things we have struggled with in the container ecosystem and, you know, for, for, for a second of background, right? I started working in the container ecosystem right around the earliest times. And I wasn't, of course, a core contributor to Docker or anything, but a very early user right around Docker 1.0. Uh, actually played around with the Solaris container solution back when. And it, it was hard to observe then, right? Observability wasn't really on the table. Even now, there's a sense in which a container kind of feels opaque and you're relying on the person who puts the container together to instrument the inside or the innards of the container, the application, the supporting pieces of it, instrument those so that you can connect it to your outer observability platform. WebAssembly is a little more raw than containers in a sense, right? It is, you are the deliverable in a WebAssembly uh, application is the binary file that you're going to execute. And it's a bytecode format, which means you can actually inspect it during execution by just instrumenting the runtime. So for example, you can pretty easily in a host runtime say, hey, every time that the function foo gets called, uh, pop an event on my event queue. Uh, saying that that function got called or tell me any time that one function gets called more than 3000 times in a second in a single app, because that's probably a bad looping pattern or something like that. You know, I, I'm making up examples here, but the, the idea that you could instrument at how much memory it's using, how much CPU, what the function stack looks like, uh, you know, you can instrument really top to bottom in WebAssembly. And I think that over time, this is going to turn out to be pretty promising and, you know, we'll make WebAssembly a desirable thing for high performance applications, but also will illustrate to a broader community, hey, this is the level of instrumentation you could have. And the broader community, I think, will start working more toward that level instead of the opposite, where I feel like for the last 10 or 15 years as a developer, I was pressured to say, okay, you need to instrument by calling to this logging library and making sure every time this function calls, you get an entry entry and, and it became uh, burdensome to me as the developer. And the idea that the operations team can get deep visibility into an application without ever having to say to the developer, hey, can you go drop a couple of log lines in this function? Mm -hmm. That's like the biggest win-win in the observability world that we could hit. So I'm excited about the prospects of observability in the future and think that we'll see in a year and a half to two years, some big advances on the WebAssembly side there. I, I love the idea of not having to go back to the developer. And, I, don't we all? That, yeah. That. <laughs> I mean, One, not to disparage the developer, but they're busy. They got stuff to no, do. <laughs> I mean, you think about us as processes, right? Uh, and I, I've, I've spent part of my career as an opera, operations side and part of my career developer side. And it's always friction on either side because as operations your job is to make sure everything is running optimally. And as a developer, your job is to chunk your way through this backlog of features and bugs that, that'll get shipped out later. And anytime, you know, the you have to have cross-team collaboration on that, one party or the other is getting interrupted out of their core job in order to do, in order to help somebody else with theirs. And anytime you can remove some of that friction, both parties end up much happier at life. You know, <laughs> I don't have to bug a developer to do X and the developer is thinking, I don't have to stop, you know, break out of flow while I'm working on next month's feature in order to go in here and drop a log line in there or drop a, you know, 
update the S- open SSL library, man. Nothing gets developers angry like, hey, there's an open SSL vulnerability. I need you to rebuild, you know, 1400 container images with the latest. Uh, so yeah, I, I think we're making some good steps toward uh, achieving um, separation of concerns between the operational environment and the development workload. Ah, Matt, there's so much more I want to ask about how the network <laughs> components are implemented, uh, where I store uh, the modules that I'm going to install on these things and <laughs> provenance and uh, and what the pipelines look like for building and deploying. Like this could be a three yeah. podcast, but I, I think I think we're, we're coming towards the end. So what I'd like to do is just find out, is there if I'm an infrastructure kind of person, which I am. And so <laughs> development shops are somewhat limited, but I want to dip a toe in the in the WASM world and get a feel for what these applications look like, what the deployment flow looks like, and what the tooling looks like that I might be responsible for at some point. Is there a good place where I can go and try this out, sort of a sandbox environment or something I can deploy locally to, to just give yeah. it a try? Yeah. And I'll give you three. One of which will be a Fermion thing, but I want to be fair and say there are lots of Docker desktops version uh, uh, with WebAssembly support in it is a great way to just kick the tires locally. You just run Docker desktop, you play, you walk through their tutorial, they have pre-built applications that you can try and then see the shape of the workload. It's the easiest way to sort of dip a toe in the operational side of things. Uh, Fermion, we have uh, a pretty easy quick start guide that will get you from you know, zero to deployed app without ever having to write a line of code. You know, we've got a couple of sample apps that you can get out there and deploy. The the, the basic ones like Hello World, you can also deploy a CMS system and kind of get a feel for what it feels like to build it, to, to package and deploy an application into something like Fermion Cloud. Or if you really want to dive in, uh, Fermion Platform there is a, has the Terraform scripts that you can use to stand up in cloud of your choice or locally, a full kind of environment with Nomad and console and spin in all of these technologies and play around with it. And the third one is the the Run Wazzy project that Microsoft has been contributing to, particularly if you want to play with the Kubernetes space. I believe AKS actually even supports uh, turning on Run Wazzy within AKS, and you can very quickly see how that fits in in the Kubernetes system and what the strengths and weaknesses there are. So those are, I think, three good ways, the Docker route, the spin route, and the uh, the AKS route. Thank you, Matt. Tons of information. And man, you, like Ned said, this could have been a three-hour conversation for sure. And, and maybe we got to have you back and talk some more about some of the minutiae we just didn't have the time to get into today. But if you could pick out a, oh, a highlight or two from our conversation today that you want people to really get a hold of, what would those ideas be? Yeah, I think, you know, we started off talking about different domains where WebAssembly is applicable, and I think that's a good one to keep in mind. Uh, I, I listed four. I wouldn't be surprised if if you know, you can think of a fifth or a sixth one. And as a new generic technology, that's fun, you know? Uh, so that's that's one highlight, I think. The second is starting to think about how serverless could look if we could just r- radically streamline the operational aspect of it so that we're starting up in under a millisecond, executing to completion in blazing fast times, and we don't have to sort of pre-provision virtual machines and things like that. I think there's a lot of potential there Uh, That's the part about Fermion that I I think I'm really most excited with. And the third is really this, uh, and I think actually we ended there really well with those three kind of, how do you go try this out, right? The third is, you know, I think this is going to catch on and catch on quickly. So it's an 
perfect time to just kind of dip a toe in, understand the strengths and weaknesses of the technology, and then, you know, scan toward the horizon and say, you know, what is coming next? So I think those would be three ways to uh, kind of prime yourself for the potential of the WebAssembly ecosystem in a broad way, and then more, maybe in more specific ways relating to the cloud. Matt, if folks want to ask you some more questions about our conversation today, how can they find what you've written, follow up with you on Twitter, anything like that? Yep. Uh, I am Technosophos pretty much all around the internet, including Twitter. Uh, I, I actually use LinkedIn. So you can always, you know, if anybody after, after the Twittery things recently, I'm like, I'll try LinkedIn. Uh, so that's another good place. Um, but uh, we blog pretty regularly at uh, Fermion, Fermion.com's blog. I blog a lot about sort of the kind of stuff we've been talking about today, but you can also get more technical views from operations and development side of the house. And lastly, uh, Fermion has a Discord where we're all kind of hanging out and chatting all the time about WebAssembly. Uh, so those are great places to uh, to find me. The link to the Discord is at fermion.com. Scroll to the bottom and click on the Discord link. Great stuff. Thank you very much, uh, Matt Butcher, for joining us today. Great conversation, Matt. Again, I we, we do need to have you back at some point for a follow-up conversation on WASM. Uh, thanks a lot for appearing today. And if you're listening out there still to the very end, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. You are awesome. If you have suggestions for future shows, Ned and I, we we would love to hear them. Seriously, we will do our very best to take your request, find a subject matter expert to address your questions and get them on the show. Hit either of us up on Twitter. We're at Day2CloudShow. Or if you're not a Twitter person, go to the request form on Day2Cloud.io. We will get those and see if we can get a show together around your idea. By the way, did you know that you don't have to scream into the technology void alone? The Packet Pushers Podcast Network has a free Slack group that is open to everyone. Visit packetpushers.net slash Slack and join as a marketing-free zone for engineers to chat, compare notes, tell war stories, and solve problems together. And hey, maybe chat about WebAssembly. That is all at packetpushers.net slash Slack. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. 